and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Hello, everyone, here and there. <laughs> Hello, Laurie. Laurie started formal Zen practice in 1980 at San Francisco Zen Center. She worked at Green's Restaurant back in the day and lived at Tassajara for three years. In 1989, she married Hozan, moved to Berkeley Zen Center, and raised their two children. After several years of intense focus on childbearing, she gradually returned to more involvement in formal practice. She served as head student, or Shuso, at BCC in 2003 and received lay recognition in 2006. In 2018, she received priest ordination from Daito Steve Weintraub as Kosei Nyokai, Radiant Val Ocean of Suchness, and received Dharma transmission from him in September 2021. She had diligently held many practice positions over the years, too numerous to mention, that would be an entire talk in itself. Her term as treasurer ends this year, and along with Susan Marvin, is Cotenzo preparing Zendo meals which have nourished us for decades. Thank you very much, and please welcome our dear speaker today, Laurie Sanati. Thank you, Ross. <clears throat> How's the volume? Yeah, fair too. <clears throat> so I, I want to just start with just taking a few minutes to just be together and just feel what it feels like to be together, breathing. We often uh, try to welcome people who are here for the first time, but in another, in some, in one sense or in many senses, perhaps we're all here for the first time. The first time with this particular group of people in this particular place, just breathing together. It's one thing we know about everybody is that we're breathing. Everybody's breathing. And feeling what it feels like to be here together breathing. If you want to close your eyes, you can. Sometimes we can feel what's going on inside of us more easily if our eyes are closed feel our connectedness, we first need to connect with ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh said this, we should not think that to close the doors of sense perceptions is to close ourselves off from life and the world, to sever our contact with life. When we are not truly ourselves, when we are divided and dispersed, we are not really in contact with life. The contact is profound only when we are really ourselves. We are not ourselves in the present moment, 
when we look at the blue sky, we do not really see the blue sky. Therefore, the wholeness of ourselves is the basis of any meaningful contact. So let's take a few moments just to connect with ourselves inside, our own breathing. We have a custom here at BZC at the beginning of the meeting, we'll have a few moments of silence. And when we, so when we come back to ourselves, that's, that supports us to meet at the meeting. And I'm not even sure it's quite as much true things as this quote makes it sound. You know, when I open my eyes, I see you, and you're quite beautiful, but you also seem to be out there. If I close my eyes, you feel closer, almost like right here. Now let's take a few minutes to remember everything that has gone into this moment since the huge past, from the Big Bang up until this moment. And especially our ancestors, our various ancestors. We can start with our biological ancestors. My sister Debbie, who's here today, quoted to me, from somewhere. You are a survivor from a long line of survivors. We can think about those biological ancestors and you know their struggles and efforts, their pains and joys and sorrows, but all hanging in there at least long enough to get the next generation started. Just we're connected to them somehow. And the land has ancestors too. All the people who've taken care of this spot of earth for thousands of years. be here too. And then of course our Dharma ancestors carefully passing on this practice warm hand to warm hand over centuries, this 25 centuries or so. And before that people with similar values sharing them and passing them on because it's not only in the written words that are passed on, it, we have to bring it to life in every generation. 
in all our relationships within the Sangha and outside, we need to bring it to life. And we can also connect in the present moment to in space. Um, I'm half remembering a talk. I don't know whether it was Ed Brown's talk or someone quoting Ed Brown, but it was like the simple thing, like we connect through the ground. We, we're touching the ground, and the ground goes out at every direction, and we can touch everything through the ground as we connect with it. We can imagine that ground starting in this room and extending, but going out to, you know, all the plants and animals and bugs and buildings and sidewalks. We can maybe imagine our little town nestled between the mountains and the water and then extending beyond that, north and south and east and west. See how far we can reach and touch. And we can even imagine perhaps like in that ground or on that ground, some kind of filaments that we could send some friendliness out to the world through these filaments. Some open-heartedness, some warmth and well wishes. Just imagining that going out. Thank you. You can open your eyes now if you want, or keep them closed. So when I was preparing that part of the talk, I thought, what if maybe some feeling of friendliness is not available to you today? And I want to say to you, welcome. You're in the right place. Every, every feeling is welcome here. because it's really about what's happening. The first principle, first principle of our practice is what is. And the second principle is our vows. So if you're feeling some difficult, painful feelings or just not connected feelings, let them come, bring them in, bring them on, and let us help you hold them. to extend the card game metaphor probably to the breaking point. Um, so there's, there's the cards that are dealt, and then there's the cards we play. The first principle is the cards that are dealt, moment by moment. And the second principle is the cards we play. So if I say friendliness, and you're not feeling it, not feeling friendly, 
might seem like I'm saying you weren't dealt the right cards. There's something wrong with you. It's so easy to feel like there might be something wrong with us, you know? There must be a huge biological, a huge evolutionary advantage to that feeling. It just has to be because it's so easy to access. Something to do with our, our social animals that belong, the safety is in belonging or something. So it might seem like that. That I'm saying you have the wrong card somehow. You didn't get the card, you didn't get the right card. Anyway, it turns out that there are some cards that are dealt out in every hand. And many times we tend to ignore them or not be able to find them or even reject them. We might have even tried to play them and had a bad experience. So um, you might call these the Buddha nature cards. Buddha nature cards are actually dealt out in every hand. And we each have to do that individual work of figuring out what's in the way, what's hindering, what's obstructing, what's keeping us separate from our Buddha nature cards. And it always starts with turning towards what's happening. A longtime DCC senior student who has moved away, Alexandre Frappier, once said, uh, when my heart opens towards myself, that's enlightenment. I mean, that's not what, that she didn't use the word enlightenment, but that's the thing. When our heart opens towards ourselves, and you can't make it open, but you can set the stage. Just keep turning towards this moment, what's happening. And eventually, your heart will open to what's happening. Our hearts will open to what's happening. I was also, this made me remember another famous saying of Alexandra's, which is maybe a little bit off to the side, but I wanted to share it anyway. You know, um, she developed Parkinson's disease. And um, as I'm sure most people know, everybody probably knows, that involves some kind of involuntary movement and tremor and such. And she said, well, that's when I had to find true stillness. She was dealt the Parkinson's card, but somehow it helped her find the stillness card that was there all the time. idea what time it is, but I guess it doesn't matter. <clears throat> um, so I recently attended, oh thanks Joe, <laughs> you're the best. I recently attended a seminar, a three-week seminar with Lama Rod Owens. I don't know how many people are familiar with him. He's an Tibet, American Tibetan Buddhist uh, teacher, practitioner, and the, this course was about the Heart Sutra. And it just totally blew my mind, I have to say. And I thought that um, maybe the Heart Sutra is supposed to blow our mind every time we hear it. So like, 
instead of zoning out through the heart sutra like I've been doing for the last 40 years, maybe, you know, what would it be like? You know, dharmas do not appear nor disappear. Feelings do not appear nor disappear. What? <laughs> or, especially lately, no old age and death. <laughs> you know, our, uh, it's like our, our uh, Zen ancestor, Dungshan, he was like, when he first heard the Heart Sutra, he was you know, a picture of 13, like old enough in some cultures to be an adult, but still young, you know. He hears the Heart Sutra and he goes, you know, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue. He goes like this. But teacher, I have eyes, ears, nose, and tongue. Why is it saying? Why is it saying that? Oops, I messed up. So, Heart Sutra. Anyway, what actually happened is someone asked a question during this seminar that has really stayed with me. And I kind of jettisoned the rest of my original talk plan and tried to figure out how to talk about this question. And then I got cold feet and went back to the, and then I and then I jettisoned it again and came back. So ah! <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's the question. It's about Harriet Tubman because Lama Rod was talking about Harriet Tubman as a bodhisattva, which you know, in our, in the Buddhist parlance, is a person who uh, knowingly and intentionally reincarnates in order to save beings. So he framed uh, her as she knowingly and intentionally reincarnated in order to free slaves, which I mean, geez. Um, I think you all, maybe everybody knows that Harriet Tubman was a woman who escaped slavery and then kept going back many times to get other people and get them out. So this question was, how enslaved did she feel? And that's an interesting question. It's like, how did she feel? And what I hear in the question, I'm not sure, you know, what the person was thinking, but what I hear is, did she feel anything like I feel? Because I, I've been assuming no. You know what I mean? I, I've been assuming no. Um, many of us have taken bodhisattva vows for the benefit of all beings to be reborn, whatever we mean by that, for the benefit of all beings. So, so how do we feel? How do we feel? Do we feel free? Oh, the tagline to Lama Rod's uh, Heart Sutra. Are you ready to get free? <laughs> um, so how do we feel? So, you know, Harriet Tubman first kind of freed her mind through reasoning. She said that, um, I had reasoned this out in my mind. There was one of two things I had a right to, liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other. So that's sort of freeing yourself by letting go of yourself, right? 
in Zen, we sort of idealize this non-conceptual thinking. We think enlightenment is getting free from non-conceptual thinking. Um, and maybe it is, but in Buddha's teachings, actually, there's a lot of reasoning. There's a lot of reasoning. We just had a class in the Pali Sutras, and, you know, in many of them, the listeners are enlightened by, like, a reasoned dialogue with the Buddha. For example, what do you think, Kalamas? The Kalamas were a tribal group in, in India. What do you think? When hostility arises in, a, in us, does it arise for welfare or for harm? And they answer, for harm, Lord. And he just goes on, he just takes them through a long process of reasoning, reasoned, you know, dialogue. So it seems like maybe through some kind of sound reason, reasoning, Harriet Tubman found, um, maybe felt a little more free. Again, we don't know how she felt, but it sounds like that's what she may have felt, a little more free. You know, Lama Rod's answer, answer to her question had some, I wasn't quite following it, uh, maybe, but it had something to do with the Heart Sutra pointing us towards spaciousness. That somehow we are in this, the phenomenal world is like this tight, constricting world that we live in. And the Heart Sutra is pointing us towards somehow within that, finding the spaciousness, finding some spaciousness within the tight, constricting, phenomenal world. So maybe Harriet Tubman's insight uh, created some spaciousness for her. You know, and spaciousness is not just a good feeling. Spacious, we have to have some spaciousness to hear our inner guidance, to hear our still small voice within that's telling us what we're actually supposed to be doing. And she always felt that. She always felt that she was guided. She had some intuitive guidance, which, you know, is in a way is neither inside nor outside. But with that, she managed to successfully make these mini trips from, I think, pretty much Maryland to Pennsylvania. Um, so when we find that spaciousness, that's when we can hear that, hear that still small voice. So again, this question is really about us in our lives, our constricted lives in the phenomenal world, and how constricted do we feel? Do we feel somehow that we willingly entered into this constricted phenomenal world? Our old abbot Sojin Roshi used to have offered us a practice of thinking of each day as a lifetime. Anybody else remember hearing that? The only one who heard that. So it's like you incarnate. In the, you know, and, and when you wake up in the morning, you you incarnate, and you could try thinking of it as willingly incarnate into your tight, constricted life, 
you know, with all its problems and worries and constraints and difficulties and pain and everything. And then at the end of the day, you just put it all down, you pass, you pass into, I don't know, the bardo or something, I'm not sure what, but you go to sleep and then that's that. And all whatever mistakes we made our things over and just gone. And then the next day you start fresh. I like that. I like that practice. Choosing again in the morning to willingly enter this tight, tight, phenomenal world. During the Pali Sutra class, I refused to discuss rebirth, and so I thought, oh, now I have to eat my words. <laughs> we often have to eat our words, have you noticed? <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that this made me think about this, this topic of how constricted do we feel, you know, is our sashins. Sashin practice, you could think of it as like every period you willingly enter into this tight, constricted experience. And, you know, it can be really, really, really bad. I mean, you know, ah, this is terrible. I'm leaving. After this period, I'm leaving and I never come back. This is ridiculous that this is what people are doing. No one else here could be feeling what I'm feeling, or they would not be sitting here right now. Whatever it is, you know? But then for me anyway, sometimes as soon as I get up, I think, well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> or even you feel like you can kind of get this flavor of how concentrated you were with the pain, you know, somehow the pain focuses the mind and you feel it's just this tiny bit of, I don't know, bliss or something that's associated with the concentration, you know, but so that it makes you want to do it again the next period. But we could feel that way. We could feel like, okay, we're willingly, because, you know, I think there's an idea that actually this zazen period is, is, is the heaven. It's supposed to be the bliss heaven period. You know, and then the work period is where you feel this, you know, constriction of the phenomena or something, you know. But actually, I think for many of us, a lot of the time, it, it's like you willingly enter this tiny little space where you can't move and you can't say anything and just be there intentionally. You came here intentionally. You decided to do this. And here you are. Then when you get up, it's like, phew. Probably some people did leave after that one period and never came back, I'm guessing. But most of us did not. Um, so, and so you could, maybe Sashin's getting ready for us to die and be reborn in another lifetime. Or maybe that's just kind of skillful means. I don't know. But I know that we need help every day to find some spaciousness in, in our tight, constricting, phenomenal world. And I wanted to, so I wanted to hear uh, what you guys thought about this, especially about this question. Does this question touch you in any way? Or do you have any suggestions for how you find the spaciousness?
Um, Ellen, and I would like, I have a couple practical things I want to bring up at the end. So let's end the questions and answers at like 10 after instead of 15 after. Okay. And you, and you, can you signal me? Do you want that? a little warning? Or yeah, I want you to, I want you to, not before that. That'll have enough time if you just say, okay, it's 10 after. Uh, so, questions? Yes, Marco, and then, oh, and then Joe is going to bring around the um, microphone, and Rich is going to bring around the laptop so that I can see you online. Hi, everybody. Can you pick it to Gal? Can you put it to Gallery? Hi everybody, good to see you out there. <laughs> Not anywhere. What was that? No. <laughs> Somebody has their microphone on and they didn't mean to. So we have a question from the floor. Um, you mentioned twice the phrase finding a still small voice. And I was wondering what you meant by that because I have many voices. Yeah. And rarely do they feel still. Mm -hmm. Even amidst these stillness. So but what feels like happens for you is you you have a sense of deep stillness, and within that there's just a bunch of voices, no one more still than any other one. That's good. That's good. I'm glad you. I mean, it's great that you find the stillness. That's great, right there. Um, and do you ever feel? Um, like you know what you're supposed to do, or do you ever feel some some kind of deeper knowing that's not from logic or the, you know such? I guess one way I explore this is through like uh, foggy sensations, and maybe there's times in my life when I'm looking at life oriented around like sensory awareness that that feels like a deeper sense of knowing yeah but i would say that knowing what i i maybe it's just being in my early 20s but i rarely have a sense that there's some like i know what to do with my life uh -huh. thinking about it uh-huh i think that usually well, you've made you've already sense. made some interesting and probably difficult choices so something's operating there, I would think. But yeah, I think it probably comes to different people differently. And if you feel it as a sensory thing, yeah. When that's, like I was framing it as like a voice, like an auditory thing, but, but yeah, it comes through wherever it's coming through. Anyway, you've, you have made some interesting choices, so I would stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> They don't feel so habitual somehow. I mean, maybe they are, but I don't know. Never like we know for sure, I guess. It's not that kind of knowing. Any other input? Opsine and then Evan? And then 
Hi, Laurie. Great talk. Thank you. Um, so, about spaciousness. Um, my mom is 95. She lives about 10,000 miles away. And occasionally I talk to her about Buddhist ideas, and she likes it a lot. So, today I'm wondering, how do I talk to her about spaciousness? What, what does that mean? Well, I think it's somehow turning towards her present moment and helping her turn towards her present moment. I mean, that's that's where you have to find it, actually. I mean, it's, it's in this turn. It's like, oh, there's what's happening, and then there's me holding what's happening, maybe. And it's not two things, but um, yeah, there's some kind of holding. And almost, I'm going forward, but I also feel like, oh, it's a step back. It's like the tight constricting world, and then you step back a little, metaphorically speaking, and then you find the spaciousness, perhaps. But it's not easy. I mean, that's why we do this difficult practice. It's not always easy to do, find it. So it's, it's like, Thinking this is my whole life and this is where I am now. And right. I can refer to every part of it yeah. separately, but kind of as a whole as well. Right. And you wouldn't say to her, you this, you know, try to get some spaciousness, mom, or you know, try to or get outside. Yeah, or yeah, or even to you don't try to get her to do something different. It's like how do you feel towards how you're feeling, if that's a thing? How do you feel towards your difficulty, you know? How do you feel towards yourself? Something like that. Good luck. <laughs> In a different language. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can do it, Opsana, you. you. Yeah, no, well, you. it's really bringing, bringing everything to the present, yes. ultimately. Yes, yes, just another way to say that. Should really. we try to push away every opportunity we can? The last thing your mind wants to be, yeah. it's the last place your mind wants to be, anything but that. And you sit, you know, you sit down for a period of us and try to focus, like, okay, anything but that. Anything but my breath and posture. <laughs> but yeah, and modeling it is good too, you know, modeling how you. We've got to keep doing it for ourselves. She's part of your experience. You know, her her aging is is you is is in you, right? That's where you and you have to turn towards that. It's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in the spaciousness, there's a little energy. So I think it's actually maybe you could find some renewed energy in there too. Maybe. Yeah, I always do. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> okay, then we have Evan and then Mira. Thanks, Lord. You really think the ph phenomenal world is tight and con constricting? Uh, I think that's a way of talking about it, but 
again, that's the whole point of the Heart Sutra is that it's in there that the spaciousness is. It's not like you somehow leave the constriction and find the spaciousness. And it's sort of hard. I mean, I'm probably doing a, a lousy job of putting that into words, but um, you know, I, from my own experience, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it is in one way, sometimes it's in another way. Sometimes, you know, it, I have a lot of different experiences of the constricted quality, but I, I, I know what he's talking about when he says that, the constricted phenomenal world. I can connect with that from some times in my life. Um, so, but it's not, right? It's not. It's right there that the spaciousness is. So, but we also don't want to minimize or deny our feeling of constriction. Like, that's not a wrong feeling. So we say it's actually not constricted, it's spacious, then immediately we get to the wrongness of the feeling of constriction, right? So we don't want to go there. I know, I know that for sure. Um, so there's a there's like a flickering or going back and forth or or uh, yeah, how enslaved did she feel? You know. I feel like there can always be things that we feel are constricting, but for me, the experience of constriction is almost, or maybe always, in my ideas and how I'm relating to whatever's going on in the phenomenal world. And it's not the phenomenon, it's not the world. Right. So and the exact same exact same set of phenomena can be happening around you and can be you can perceive it as constricting or you can perceive have that sense of spaciousness and so to say that it's i don't know it just, to say that the world is constrict the phenomenal world it just sounded like almost that you were saying that the phenomenal world is almost inherently constricting and i guess i don't know I don't know either. It's all, it's it's on the line there or something. I mean, you know, the Heart Sutra. Yeah, what you're saying about it's it's our views or it's our ideas because that's what the Heart Sutra is actually talking about is like these ideas that Buddhists had about how our minds work with skandhas and datus and ayatanas and the twelvefold chain of all those things. They they were constricted by that. They ended up getting all constricted by their idea of Buddhism. That's how we, I mean, that seems to be what's being said. And so this comes along and says, no, 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 no. Those things aren't any realer than anything else. Those are just things that Buddha made up to help us. They're not, you know, like, we're not going to fight over, is that your feeling skanda or is that your, your perception skanda? You know, we're talking about feelings here, you know, is that in Vedana or somewhere else? We're not going to fight over that. Because that would be crazy. <laughs> but it's still, I, I, I guess what, I, what I'm worried about is blaming the person for feeling the constriction. And some people's lives, you know, are ex constricted by other people's behavior that's constricting them. I mean, it's not that simple, right? People who have been in prison have found some kind of freedom, but but not everybody, it's not like, oh good, we should put more people in prison so they can find the freedom, you know? 
it, it's just tricky. I think it's tricky. But I think it's good to bring up all these different points, especially when we're together like this. So thank you. I think it's a good point that you're making. Mira? Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, the point that I resonated with was when you were saying that people wanted to jump up from a period of Zazen and flee, um, because I felt that way. But I felt that way often because of physical pain yeah. in my body. Totally. I was one of these people that was never flexible, never did gymnastics, and my body's never been very flexible. So, um, but too. I had this idea that from Sojin, from early on, because I started early on with his. I was going to say, you have been at this for a long time for someone who's yeah, talking so I, about the I way think I heard things that he stopped saying, you know, and I still have those ideas from early of his teaching. Uh -huh. You know, like no pain, no gain. So I sat with a huge amount of pain, which I'm not doing today. Because <laughs> at this point, the pain lasts for months and years, mm. so you can't do that anymore. But anyway, I keep thinking about um, Japanese people who started their lives sitting in Seiza and sitting um, cross-legged. And when they were sitting Zazen, I don't know if they had the kind of physical pain that some Westerners like myself have had. So I wonder if our experience of Zazen has actually been quite different, um, that they had more bliss and joy and just really wonderful feelings, which I know because I have experience too, but my feelings have been less that way because of physical pain. So that's just something that's been with me for a long time, wondering about how is our experience really the same as the original experience that people got from Sazen. And I recommend this kneeling chair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I understand what you're saying, and they may not have felt the exact same pain that we felt, but like maybe that's why they keep talking about this sat facing a wall for nine years. You know, I mean, maybe they had to sit more periods to get to that, but I'm pretty sure I feel I feel confident myself, but I, again, I don't know, and maybe nobody knows, but I, have, I feel confident that this experience of not moving and the discomfort of not moving in one way or another was what they were facing. Um, again, Sojin had a lot of pain, but you're, I mean, but he's an example of not, you know, of someone who didn't grow up sitting Seiza, but, um, he had a lot of pain and and you know life is full of pain i mean we're going to have a lot of pain and life is full of difficult things right i think we can all agree on that life is full of difficult things so the time we spend on the cushion being with i think almost everybody who's had a really difficult experience has said that their sashin practice helped them get through that because it's about staying with what's happening when you know every part of you wants to run away um, 
and separate from it. Like, so when my knees were bad, it's like my knees weren't me. It's like me and my knees were two different things, right? Um, so I think whether you're right or wrong, I still think that Zazen practices. But I mean, you don't want, if you get up and you still have the pain, yeah, that's different. You, you've got to get to know your body enough to know You've got to, we've got to get to know our bodies very intimately to know whether this is just some, you know, the pain. If I lift my sternum, my back's like, what are you doing? You know, and then there's pain. But over time, that, you know, is released. Our bodies keep changing decade by decade. So exactly. You've got to stay with it. 20 or 30 that you got up after all this pain doesn't work that way when you're 17. Yeah, so I mean, I switched to a bench too, so I, I, I agree <laughs> with that. Um, I don't see anybody with their hand raised online. Is there anybody now that I'm looking at you? A few more minutes here. Okay. Oh, Ross, I'm sorry, Ross had his hand up first. Uh, in response to uh, Mira's point, which is really quite uh, apt for us chair sitters, that with the Buddha came from a place in the yoga tradition where sitting on the ground and is training for meditation as well as in China and in Japan, I believe. So there's, but there's, the practice has been going on for centuries. So there's something about the suffering that goes deeper than the chair or sitting on the ground. Otherwise, it would have died out long ago, in my view. So uh, I'm coming up on a year now sitting in a chair. And even though the physical comfort is, is more comfortable physically for me, my suffering still is present. There's nothing persists. And I really appreciate your uh, note, Laurie, about adjusting with the causing conditions of our life as we grow old or grow young, and which we're going. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, what I, one thing I heard about Mira's point, though, just to draw it out, if I'm hearing you right, there was that maybe they kept coming back because they were they had bliss, so that was what they were coming back for, and we're like just fools for coming back for pain. Anyway, Susan, whoops. Thank you, Laurie. Um, so you, you asked the question, how enslaved was Harriet Tubman? And I wonder, how did she feel? How enslaved did she feel? How enslaved did she feel? Yes. And I wonder if another question might be what you think about um, that any feeling of freedom or liberation for her as a bodhisattva was in the doing, in the acting, in the action of going back and forth, not as, as an end, but that that liberation came in the, the act of going back and forth and bringing others back. I'm sure it did. I mean, that, that makes sense. It would, but she took, she waited a long time. So I, I wonder about that time. She got married. She waited a long time. 
and she waited to be guided, you know, she waited. So I think there had to be some, I mean, who knows, I'm just making this up, but some kind of spaciousness and freedom to even wait and choose her moment like she chose her moment, being guided from within. That's what she said. But the doing is, yeah, the doing is, has to, it has to come to the doing, you know. And then the more you do, I could imagine the more she did it, the more she did it. You know, the more it felt good to do that, you know. It felt free, like I'm not just free, but I'm enacting my freedom. I'm manifesting it, you know. To me, that's kind of the lesson for us as Zen students, really. To manifest, to yeah. find a way to manifest. And it's not like an end all of getting somewhere, <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's in the, the doing. Mm -hmm. And you know, part of what, I mean, she came back because she, I mean, you know, she was lonely. I mean, she missed her, her loved ones, right? She wanted her loved ones to get free too. So we're connected to the, you know, it's all about how we're connected too. Um, okay, so as of the 10 minutes, yes. Thank you, Susan. Good question, good point. <clears throat> so um, I think it's very fortuitous that Hoson is in a session today. And I realized that just, I didn't realize that until this morning for Hoson, but I have this idea for his birthday, which is, um, Last year he turned 75 and I did not have any good ideas for his birthday. But I got this idea that we could all write down and submit our own turning word stories. You know, like his book, Turning Words, is all about these encounters that stayed with you. And I mean, I guess the ideal would be, would be if you have one that features him. But even, but that's not the, that's not the most, most important thing, just a story write it down, I'm thinking maybe something like 500 to 1,000 words or something, um, and give it to me, either write it down, you know, I can print, if you email it to me, I can print it, if you want to write it down, decorate it, that's fine, and I will, assemble, I will assemble them into some kind of book, and I'm going to have to figure, I'm going to figure out how to create an email list to pass this on to, but I just thought, oh, I could tell a bunch of people uh, right now, so um, if you like that idea if that's you know seems cool to you um when is his birthday Just his birthday is not till december 13th but if you could get them to me by something like thanksgiving then i'll have time to assemble things and again i'll figure out and i want to do it as a surprise if, if there's any way to pull that off um but i do have to what's the idea what's the question well if you haven't read this book turning words um it's a bunch of stories about moments, things people said that stayed with him, that enlightened him, that woke him up, and that he that he remembers and practices. You know, there's it's um, so so the idea is to to make it a little less um, maybe a few of us had Ken show or something, but to talk about this these experiences we have had that turned us, turned our lives and stayed with us. And um, just write it down as a little story, however you think to do it. There's no limit on how to do it. It could be a picture maybe too. I don't know. Anyway. It could be short. And it can be short. Yeah, less than 500 words for sure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. 
And then the other thing I wanted to mention was that we have this practice when we're doing the four vows that we're about to do, <clears throat> which is we try to shorten the word I and emphasize the word vow. These four times in the chant, we say, I vow. And there's a tendency because of the way chanting and zoning out and everything happens is to go, I vow to save them. Whatever. So what we're what we what our effort is been for many years and kind of lost it a little bit lately is I vow to awaken with them. Everybody understand what I'm asking? Does it make sense? Yes, Susan. Um, Liz made a point of saying if we think in terms of rhythm, I gets one beat and vow gets two beats, and that's quite helpful. Okay, shall we? Beings are nevertheless, I vow to awaken with them. Illusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Karma gates are boundless, I surpassable. I vow to become it. 